Good morning. I want to welcome you back to our series, The uh, Acts of the Apostles is the name of our series, A Call to Action. The, the book of Acts, as we've been learning, is more than a history book. It's more than just an accurate record of the beginning of the church about how the gospel spread through the known world at that time, through the actions of the apostles. It is that, but it's more. The book of Acts is actually a call to action to believers and to churches like ours today. And the call to action that we are going to hear this morning as we dig into chapters 3 and 4 is probably, I'm just assuming here, probably going to make some of you uncomfortable. But I think that's probably true of most call to action Anytime we move beyond just talking about something and, and we have to move into doing something about it, it's uncomfortable. It's a lot more uncomfortable than, let's say, just sitting on the couch talking about something. Watching other people answer the call to action. That's, you know, when you watch others, they go do it. That's always more comfortable than getting up and actually doing something ourselves. But I think this call to action may be particularly uncomfortable for some because there's fear that attacks us. When this call to action comes to us, fear attacks us every single time we think about answering the call to speak truth. What kind of fear attacks us? Well, fear of rejection. Fear of being silenced, fear of being punished, fear of experiencing loss. All of those fears come rushing at us when we step into any conversation about truth. Why would that be? Well, we know that God is truth and that God reveals truth, but we also know that Satan hates God. And therefore, Satan hates truth. But here's the thing about Satan and God. Satan cannot defeat God. He can try, but he can't. He knows it. We know it. And so what does he do? He attacks truth. And we see his assault on truth every day from those who reject God. So what are we supposed to do about it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about our call, your call, mine, as a follower of Jesus Christ, our call to speak truth. Lord, I am asking that as we dive into your word this morning, that you would just help us. Give us a humble heart. Give us ears that don't just hear from your word, but a heart that wants to listen. Give us a desire to, to want to be obedient to you, even in things that are uncomfortable for us. Sometimes conversations that we may get into, uh, they, they, they make us fearful or they make us uncomfortable, but it doesn't negate our call that you have given us to speak truth um, into a dark world. And we're just going to thank you for what you're going to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you join me in Acts chapter 3? Open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 3. Chapter 3 sets the stage for an attack on truth that we're going to read about in chapter 4. Let me set the, the scene for you in chapter 3. Peter and John, apostles, uh, they went to the temple 
And they went to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to pray. It's a time of prayer. There were three times of prayer at the Jewish temple. They went at 3 o'clock. And every day there was a man in his 40s who was crippled since birth. And he had some friends who would, who would help take him to this particular gate inside the temple. And they would position him at a particular gate in the temple where lots of people would go by. Religious people, people that want to impress God. And so it was strategically a good place to sit and beg for money. We jump into that story in in verse 3, and that's the scene. Peter and John, it says in verse 3, they go with this man. They see Peter and John, and they're about to enter, and he asks them for money, right? So verse 4, Peter and John look at this man intently, and Peter says, look at us. So just imagine in your mind why he would say that. So you've got a man who's crippled sitting on the, on the ground by this gate as they're passing by, and he's looking down with his hand up asking for money. Peter and John say, look at us, look at us. He looks up, and he's expecting money. But Peter said, I don't, I don't have any silver or gold for you. But I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Peter took the lame man by the right hand. He helped him up. And as he did, think about this. The man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. You know what that means? You know why that extra description is placed there? It wasn't just that, that uh, the, the bones or, or, or whatever it was that wasn't functional was now functional He didn't have to go to uh, therapy to strengthen the atrophy that had taken place over 40 years of never using his legs. Not only was there there healing in the structural part uh, of his legs, uh, all the atrophy was immediately strengthened as well. It's an incredible miracle. He jumped up, he stood on his feet, he began to walk, and then that walking turned into leaping, that leaping was then expressed in praising God, and he went into the temple with them. And all the people saw him walking. They heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar that they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, that's the name of the gate inside the temple, they were absolutely astounded. And they rushed out in amazement into Solomon's colonnade. And that's where this man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Now Peter and John have an audience. And, in, and with that audience of, of amazed people who are at the temple that day, Peter begins to share with them the truth of the gospel. He shared with them the truth about what happened to Jesus on the cross, the truth about the resurrection of Jesus, the truth about how they should respond to that information with repentance with faith in Jesus Christ, to forgive them of their sin, to give them a brand new life, to begin following Jesus as the leader of their life. So you have this scene in your mind. You have a man who was just healed from being crippled for over 40 years. That's pretty exciting, right? Later on in chapter 4, we find out that that many people believed the gospel message about Jesus. And they were saved from sin. They were saved from hell. That's pretty exciting. 
And at this point in the story, we might think to ourselves, this is amazing, this is wonderful, what a happy ending. I guess everyone lived happily ever after. Well, my wife and I went down to Lancaster Bible College recently to watch our daughter Hannah in a musical called Into the Woods, which is not a biblical musical uh, from a biblical perspective. There are some uh, themes in it that we would find uh, throughout Scripture, but it's the story of, of fairy tales, uh, Cinderella and, and Rapunzel, Jack and the Beanstalk, the Wicked Witch, and they're all... They're all mashed together into this one story. And about halfway through the musical, like right before intermission, everybody got what they wished for. Everything worked out just like you would expect it to in a fairy tale. And then we took a break and went to the bathroom and people got snacks. And we went back in for the second part. And I'm thinking, what more is there? Everyone just got what they wanted. They just sang a song about ha living happily ever after. Let's go home. We went back in and we sat down. And as the second part of the musical started, everything came undone. Everything went sideways. People started dying. There were murders and marriages fell apart. It was like, what is happening right now? And that's how chapter 4 of Acts feels to me. Who could possibly have a problem with what just happened at the temple? I mean, surely everyone could agree that this miraculous healing is a good thing. I can't imagine who the person would be that would say, this is ridiculous. You helped a man get out of a wheelchair? I can't believe you would do that. Like, I can't imagine the person who would be upset about what just happened. Surely everyone could see that this miracle, and, and, and they watch it, they see it happening, and, and then they conclude, well, they said, in the name of Jesus, in the, in the power of Jesus, Jesus has the power to heal. Therefore, based on what Peter just said, Jesus has the power to save sinners because he's God who died and rose again. Like There's a line here that just makes sense. And at that point in the story, I expect to see the next verse say, and everyone was saved and they all went to heaven. Well, chapter 4, verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people... They were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, like that's the police, and some of the Sadducees. Those are the ruling class, the people in charge. They confronted them. These leaders were very disturbed. What? Is that the right word? They're disturbed. What are they disturbed about? They're disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. And they were so disturbed that it says they arrested them. And since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. Peter and John are spending the night in jail because they healed a man in the name of Jesus. 
Like I told you before, verse 4 says, but many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Remember, in the end of uh, Acts chapter 2, we saw that the number was around 3,000 men plus women and children, and, and now it's growing. Peter and John were just arrested and spent the night in jail. Why? Well, it's because healing a crippled man's against the law, right? No. Because they were telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that, see, that was in direct conflict with the official narrative about Jesus. The official narrative about Jesus from the ruling class was that Jesus was a troublemaker who deserved to die. The official narrative was that his disciples came in and stole his body in the middle of the night so that they could trick people into thinking he had risen from the dead. That's the official narrative from those in charge. You speak contrary to the official narrative, you must be silenced, you must be punished, you must be canceled. Any of this sound familiar? They spent the night in jail. The next day, it says that the temple rulers, they brought Peter and John back in for a little talk, a little sit-down. And they asked them, by what power, by, by what name did you do this? Do what exactly? Heal the crippled beggar, is that what we're talking about here? Is, is that what the problem that everyone's so upset about? Listen to this response from chapter 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Is that what you're all wound up about? Well, let me clearly state to all of you, to, to all the people of Israel, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man, by the way, that you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. See, now that's what they're upset about. For Jesus is the one referred to in the Scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Do you understand the dynamic of, of what's being said here? These are... These are leaders of the people who are supposed to be the religious leaders, who are supposed to point people towards the coming Messiah. He came and they killed him. And they're calling him out on it. They're saying, you guys, you, you, you're the ones lying to everyone. And then he says this. Here's the truth. The truth is, verse 12, there's... Salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's the truth. And I want you to pay attention to verse 13, because this is where you and I jump into this story. Verse 13, the members of the council, the ruling class, were amazed when they saw the boldness the courage of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures, like them, who are smarter than everyone else. 
I say verse 13 is where we jump into the story because that's most of us. We're not experts in apologetics. We're not seminary professors. We're just ordinary people. We're just ordinary people that realize, by God's grace, realize that we are sinners, far from God, in need of a Savior. We're just ordinary people who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sin, to make us right with God, to give us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and transform our lives so that we can become more like Jesus. We're just ordinary people that love Jesus. When I went to college, I was told by some of my professors that I could reject what God has revealed about the origins of life in the Scripture and still be a wonderful Christian. That's what I was told. I was told that my biblical worldview had misinformed me of the truth about the world. Here's the thing. I, I, I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was just a college student. I had no seminary training at that time in my life. I was just a student who believed that God is truth and that God reveals truth. And see, that's all it took to get people's attention. That is the impact that truth makes. That is the impact that the gospel makes. The, yeah, the, the miracle that Peter and John did for this man, it, yeah, it got, it got the attention of people in the courtyard that day, for sure. But it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved souls from hell. It was the gospel that changed people's lives. And you take that same miracle, that miracle, it didn't seem to matter to the religious elites, the religious rulers. They were completely fine. They were prepared to ignore that that even happened. What was it that rattled them? What rattled those guys was ordinary people living out the truth of the gospel. It got their attention. We don't have to go around performing miraculous healings to get people's attention or to gain an audience for the truth. We don't need to perform a miracle to validate the truth about Jesus. Our lives, your life, my life, should validate the gospel of Jesus as truth. Because the gospel says that Jesus transforms sinners like you and sinners like me. And so when people see that in your life and my life, when they see that happening, the truth is confirmed. Now, it doesn't mean everyone's going to accept that truth. It didn't happen here in this particular story. The, think about the, the, the healed beggar was literally standing there in front of them. Truth was standing there, staring them in the face. They didn't know what to do with that because they had rejected Jesus. Now, they couldn't admit that they were wrong. If they admitted that they were wrong, they could lose their power, and that's really what this was all about. They were unwilling to lose their power. 
It reminds me, I, I, I read this, and the thing that pops into my mind every time I, I read this uh, is, is the, the, the image of the riots back in 2020. I can't, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this reporter standing there with his microphone, and behind him in the background, there are buildings on fire. There are cars on fire. And he looks at the camera and he said, it's mostly a peaceful protest. <laughs> what? I can literally see the truth behind you. It's in the shot. At least stand over here where we can't see it if you're going to say that. And that's how this scene looks to me. It's like he's standing right here. So the rulers had a private meeting. They didn't know what to do with this. And they get together in, in this chapter, and they say, what do we do? Everyone knows the miracle happened. They saw it with their own eyes. We have to stop this Jesus message from spreading. Why? Because they don't want to lose their power. They like being the authoritarians. They were not willing to consider the truth that was staring them in the face. And so they decided to reject the truth. They decided to suppress the truth with a lie. See, cancel culture is not a new thing. It's not new. You can hold your finger there and look at Romans chapter 1. It's described here in Romans 1, starting in verse 18. God God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who, listen to this, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, how did we get to that point where that's happening? Well, verse 19 says they know the truth. They know the truth about God because He has made it obvious to them. It is staring them in the face. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature. They have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they would not worship Him as God or give Him thanks. They rejected God. As a result, they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result of that, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise... They instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and, and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile, degrading things with each other's bodies. Listen to this. They traded the truth about God for what? For a lie. Nothing new. The rulers called Peter and John back in after their little private meeting. and They commanded them, stop talking about Jesus. Stop teaching people about this Jesus. Verse 19, their response to this intimidation but Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than Him? The rulers threatened them some more, and, and 
they had to set them loose. So they didn't want to deal with the political blowback of, of punishing these men who had healed a 40-something-year-old who was crippled since birth. That was too hard to spin at the time. What did Peter and John do next? Well, they went back to the folks from the church, and they prayed together. Look at verse 29. Now, this is what they prayed. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. That's what they asked for. Stretch out your hand with healing power. Many miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus as they are validating the truth of the gospel. God was performing miracles through the apostles, and they prayed for some more of that. And that prayer was answered. Verse 31, after this prayer, the meeting place shook. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they preached the word of God with boldness. They asked for boldness. And that prayer was answered. It's a great story, right? It's an exciting story. It's an inspiring story. And this is the point, of course, where the next verse is going to say, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, not exactly. That's not where this story is headed. Let's stop here. And let's consider our call to action today. Our call to speak truth today. Ephesians 4.15 calls followers of Jesus to speak truth boldly in love. And there's lots of other verses that call us to this, um, this boldness in speaking truth. And right now, as you hear that, there are different people sitting here. So the, all the extroverts in the room are like, yeah! Let's go give them both barrels in the, of the truth right in the face, right? The extroverts are like, let's go. And all the introverts in the room are like, oh, I don't know. I don't like this at all. I do not like where this is headed at all. I would rather go to the dentist and get a root canal than have a confrontation with someone. I don't like this. Everyone, take a deep breath. Because the word bold does not mean be obnoxious or rude. That's not what it means. The word bold simply means without fear. Without fear. Doesn't mean a call to be a jerk, but it also doesn't mean a call to be a coward. It's a call to speak without fear. And we can speak without fear calmness and in love and in kindness. You know, we all have our God-given personalities, and, and whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, either way, we, we, we must surrender ourselves, our whole selves, the way that we're wired, all of it. We have to surrender our whole selves to the Holy Spirit so that He can help us say what we should say, not say the things we shouldn't say, that He can help us with our tone, help us with, uh, with the levels of... Uh, uh, emotion that we need to put in at a particular time, all of that. We need the Holy Spirit to help us with that. But we have to be ready to speak truth boldly, without fear, in love. Why does it matter? You think, why uh, someone else will do it? There's, there, let the extroverts do it. 
Why does it matter? Here's why it matters. If, if you and I, if we do not speak truth, who's going to speak it? If we refuse as followers of Jesus to speak truth, who will speak it? Romans 10, 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yay, that's right, that's truth. Well, how then, there's a series of questions that follows that statement. It's a true statement. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Truth. And we cheer. But the series of questions that follows that true statement is this. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How then can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Finally, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? I've heard it. I'm sure you've heard it. Some may say, you know what, Christians, they need, they need to not be political. Don't be political. And what they mean by that is, when they say that, they're trying to say, keep your religious views about the Bible or whatever, about God, keep it out of the public square because we don't want to hear it. That's what they mean. You can talk about God and, and all that Jesus stuff all you want at that little building that you all gather at once a week. If you want to talk about it in there, fine. Knock yourself out. But once you leave that building, the only voices allowed to be heard are those from Hollywood and Twitter and government officials. We don't want to hear from you. That's what they're really saying. Christians are to remain silent in the public square. Now, if that is true, where then is the moral and ethical formation to come from? Is the atheist to have the only voice allowed to be heard in conversations of ethical and moral formation? If you and I believe, and I absolutely do believe, that the Word of God is truth, and if we believe that, why would we not speak that truth into conversations about moral and ethical formation? The atheist, the Marxist, rejects, re rejects God, which means, by definition, they reject truth. It's why they want to destroy the family. It's why they want to destroy marriage and use sexual sin to do it. It's why they want to murder unborn children and talk about nonsense like the, the, the heartbeat that you hear on an ultrasound is a sound effect. You heard that this week? It's a lie, and we're going to call it a lie. It's why they want to sexualize children and normalize gender ideology. It's all a rejection of God expressing itself in a rejection of truth. It's no more complicated than that. And if you and I are unwilling to speak truth that is revealed in the Word of God, then the only ideas, the only philosophies, the only worldviews that will be heard in the public square, at work, at school, in your, in your family units, are those of the atheists who reject God of those who demand to be their own authors of truth. It's the only voices that will be heard. 
If you look back in history, sometimes we wonder, like, how in the world did slavery last so long? Why is it that, that Christians didn't speak back against that or, or out against it stronger, sooner? And the truth is, you know, there, there were some who did. You know, uh, William Wilberforce was, was uh, a strong voice against slavery. And, you know, you can find Christians, in fact, when we get into, you know, our American experience, it was uh, Christians who really uh, pushed forward uh, a message of, of we have to end this, right? So, but there were Christians involved in it, and when people would speak out against it, Oftentimes, it wasn't just criticism from outside the church. It was, it was Christians saying, be quiet. You're, you're, you're being too political. What? That's what they said. How is it that Christians remained, not all, but many, remained silent as in, in Germany as the Nazis began to take power? You have pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer that spoke out. He had some others that stepped in, but it wasn't a majority. In fact, a lot of people within the church in Germany said, Dietrich, chill out. Stop being so political. Maybe you, I don't know, I know some of you because I have conversations, but I don't know all of you well enough to know kind of where you're at with current events, but... Maybe you have no idea what an ESG score is. Maybe, maybe you have no, no awareness of this push in the world right now towards a digital currency and, and that is gaining ground. Like we're, we're pretty close to seeing that become a reality. Maybe you don't have an awareness that the other thing that the Apostle John saw and he recorded in the book of Revelation about a global government and, and absolute authoritarian control, like all of that stuff is being built in front of us. This thing about the Great Reset, it's not my words. I'm not calling it that. Those are people in global stages that, that want that. And they're working really hard towards it. And, and you're like, I don't know. That sounds, sounds like a conspiracy. Okay, fine. You may want to stay out of the, some of those conversations because they feel like they're too political to be involved and you just don't want the hassle, but it's happening. There's a battle happening in our country. There's a battle happening around the world. And I'm not even talking about the conventional war stuff. I'm talking about a spiritual battle that's being fought in the culture, a spiritual battle being fought in government policies and, and in many classrooms and in many families and the battles between those who fear God and those who reject God. And if you and I, as followers of Jesus, if we are unwilling to answer the call to speak truth boldly without fear in love, if we're unwilling to do it, where's the voice of truth going to come from? Who will speak it? I want to give you two helpful reminders that I think will help us. Because maybe for some of you, uh, this is music to your ears, and for others, you're like, I don't like this at all. This is making me super uncomfortable. I don't want to have these conversations. Well, you and God can figure that out, but here's, here's two things I think will be helpful. As we, as we answer our call to speak truth boldly in love, here's the first one. Number one, we've got to remember, always remember that there is truth. There is truth, so pursue it. 
I just think there's great courage and confidence that comes from knowing that truth is not a mysterious Bigfoot that, that no one can seem to find or prove exists. That's not what truth is. God is real. God is truth. God reveals truth. Therefore, truth not only exists, truth can be known. I told you about some of those tensions I had in, in college over my belief in creation. It kind of forced me in that season of my life to, to start, uh, start reading a lot more. There's this really great book. It's, uh, this one's actually newer. I started off with uh, some Lee Strobel stuff and, and uh, some other apologetics that, that helped me have more confidence in, in just being part of these, these conversations with people. One of, the, one of the more recent ones that I would recommend to you is Atheism Dead? Some of you remember the, the book, is, is God Dead? You know, that, that book from way back. Well, this, the title of this is a playoff of that by Eric Metaxas. And it lays out some of the most recent discoveries in science about things like DNA, about the fine-tuning of our universe, both at the cellular level, you know, the very small cells. There's just there's a fine-tuning there that can't be explained except you know, apart from a designer. And on the macro level, when it comes to the planets and, and the universe and how big our, uh, our planet actually is, if it was a little bit smaller, it wouldn't work. If it was just a little bit bigger, it wouldn't work. And all of these things that they are finding in science continue to push more and more scientists, more and more atheists towards admitting uh, this can't be explained apart from a designer. It just can't be. Now, they aren't ready. Many of them are not ready to believe in God. And say, so what do they do? Well, God, God doesn't exist, but I can't explain this apart from a designer, so it has to be aliens. That's what they're suggesting. And they're saying it in academic, uh, academic circles, like it's, like it's a, a legit possibility that aliens are the designers of our planet. Think about that. The truth is staring them in the face. Like a man standing tall after 40 years of a crippled existence, but they refuse to let go of the rejection of God. They would rather believe in aliens than believe in God. Only God can change a heart like that. And here's my challenge. My challenge to you is, I don't know how well read you are or, or how often you read books, but you need to, you need to read books. You can't speak truth boldly if you have no truth to speak. Does that make sense? And I'm coming from this place, just so you, here's some, here's some truth about me. When I was in high school, I hated to read, hated it. I did everything I could to avoid reading books. You can validate that by asking my wife, because I would wait till she read the book in high school, and then I would go and, and she would tell me what was in the book. And... And I was able to get by in high school uh, doing that. Okay? It's terrible. I'm not recommending it. I'm not proud of it. But that's just the reality of where I was. And then I got to college, and I'm like, oh, my. This is what I believe, but I don't know why I believe it. And I don't know how to defend it. And so I started reading more. And, and now I love it. I, I, I love to read books that reveal truth. And, um, and I just would pass that on to you as a challenge. Maybe... Maybe we don't speak truth because we have not made the effort 
to learn what truth is. I've heard people in, in deep, passionate conversations about sports. You ever hear these conversations? Maybe you're part of them. Maybe you're a sports person. And I listen to people talk about, like, let's say there's three of us, four of us standing around, and they're, they're talking about what this coach did and, and the, the stats about this player and this player made this play and all they should have done. I hear those conversations, and they are passionate about it. And they just know a lot of stuff. And I, and I listen quietly. I rarely participate in those conversations. Why? Because I don't watch ESPN. I don't watch uh, games on TV very often. I never get through a whole game. I don't, I don't know this stuff. I don't know it because I put no effort into learning it. I don't care enough about it. Say that to say this. Maybe that's you when it comes to the truth. Maybe you don't care enough about it to put the effort into learning it. And I don't mean that to be harsh. It's just maybe it's a reality that, that you and God need to work out. Make the effort to read your Bible. Make the effort to read biblically solid books that reveal the truth of God's Word. You're going to be a lot more confident when it comes time to have a conversation with someone. Not that you can uh, go into a conversation arrogantly, but you're just going to have more confidence and courage to know that you know what you know, to know you know the truth. And you can say truth in love. You don't have to say it arrogantly, like, you're so stupid, how could you possibly? You don't have to be like that in your conversation, but you can just be calm and like, that's not what I believe, and here's, here's what I believe and why I believe it. They're going to do what they're going to do with it. But at least you can speak truth because you put enough effort into knowing it. Always remember there's truth. There is truth, so pursue it. Here's the second thing. Always, always remember to pray. Always remember to pray. Just like Peter and John and the church got together in, in this chapter in Acts and they prayed for courage. They prayed for boldness to be able to speak into conversations where truth needed to be heard, where the truth of God's word needed to be heard. Pray for that. Pray, pray for boldness to share what God's Word says. Pray for the ability to speak truth without fear and to do it in love. Pray for confidence in knowing that God is real, that God is truth, that God reveals truth in His Word. This confidence to know that truth not only exists, it can be known. And when you get called, and you will, I will, this is going to happen. When we get called a hater, when we get called a bigot, when we get called in and you fill in the blank phobe, when that happens, just remember, it's not true. Just stand on the, on the truth. Truth is not hate. Love speaks truth. And the truth is that sin destroys lives. It just does. Sin destroys lives. And if I love someone, if you love someone, you don't want their life to be destroyed. That's love. Dying without Christ results in an eternity separated from God in a very real place called hell. And if I am standing there holding a life preserver while someone else drowns, is that love? Speaking truth is love that needs to be spoken in love. We are called to speak the truth boldly without fear, in love.